Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. And God, while we're here on this earth, teach us how to make your name in our lives more holy. Teach us how to hallow your name. Lord, there is nothing that we could be more thankful for than your holiness. Because it's through your holiness, as we've seen in previous weeks, that all that you do for us in the world, in our own personal lives, intimately and yet infinitely, is an expression and an extension of your holiness. Lord, as we live this out, whether it's during holidays with families, separated from families, wonderful celebrations or difficult memories, help us not to overlook the fact that you are the God over them all. I was reminded this week that even in the most difficult situations that we experience, you see us. You know what's going on. The opposite is unbearably thinkable. That you would see us or not see us, actually, and not have any ability to change what's going on in our current state. Lord, why would we pray to a God who is not sovereign? To a God who could do something but actually is prohibited but what we as finite creatures do on this earth. Father, forgive us. And sometimes that's what begins the process of restoration, is simply asking for that forgiveness. With you primarily, but also with the relationships that we have that have virtually shattered. Help us to be ready at the point to extend forgiveness to those who ask it. To not hold on to any grudge or any unjust reason to not love family members who hurt us, friends who betray us, bosses and employers who unjustly rule over us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to just like what Titus says, live in such a way ready to do every good work that we possibly can to shine your light and to glorify you with our lives. I pray that as we turn our attention to your word this morning, would you give us clarity and decisiveness to know what to do and the strength to do it. I pray this in your name. Lord Jesus, and only in your, in your name is this possible. And all God's people said, amen. So this morning will be the, the conclusion of our time spent in, in Titus with, with you and I. Like I said last week, we actually have laid all the groundwork that we may need to understand chapters 2 and 3, because chapter 1 really is the, the pivotal foundation for what chapters 2 and 3 are all about. Understanding who we are, understanding what truths we affirm, what truths we hold to, how to identify the, uh, the, the false teachings that have entered into not just Crete, but also into our day and age as well. And what we were wanting to do is to, to understand where in our lives do we need to pursue holiness as a result of understanding true biblical doctrine and theology. Today's message is actually going to be probably more of a Bible study than it will be a, a, a typical sermon because chapters 2 and 3 are really quite simple. And like I said last week, Christianity is rather simple. Easy, not very. Possible to do in our own strength, not a chance. But it is quite simple. And the only way in which we are able to do what chapters 2 and 3 say is 
first and foremost, with the assumption that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, born again, true believers, who are pursuing the holiness of God as the goal of our lives. What's important to keep in mind is that even though we will be reading chapters 2 and 3, and even though they flow so seamlessly, we need to, to keep some things in mind. I remember I mentioned the very first week that we started in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, that we need to remember where we are at in Exodus. And as pastor gets ready to come back next week, it's, it's fitting to, to remember these things, to remember that the sovereignty of God didn't catch, none of these things caught, caught God off guard. The, the flakiness of the Israelites, back and forth. In fact, we will get pretty soon after God has done this incredible way of expositing to Moses the, the instructions to give to the Israelite people about what they, should do, what they should do, how they should serve God, how they should worship God. Not too long after where we are currently with, with Pastor, will we see the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain forming an idol to resemble one of the most prominent Egyptian gods. Because our hearts are naturally prone to wander. Our hearts are naturally prone to give what it gives instant gratification. The same thing with Crete. There were so many people that had invaded the church in Crete who were wanting to preach things out of selfish gain, selfish motives. But this did not catch God off guard because God at all times is in control. Again, why would we pray to a God who wasn't in control of all things? It's ludicrous. That makes no sense that we would pray to a God who can't do things because we prevent him from doing them. We also need to keep in mind the spiritual heritage that we have, that Titus, a Gentile, through the blood of Christ, through being, as we'll see in chapter 3 in just a moment, the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he has been grafted into the family of God. The same family that God had originally established through the Israelite people. The structure for worship, how we are to praise Him, understanding that His Word is the thing that we base our entire worship of God upon. That's how we know Him. That's how He's communicated Himself to us, specifically. Creation can only get us so far, but it's the special way that He has revealed Himself to us that we are able to understand not only what He has done and what He is like, but who He truly is. The sacrificial system was only temporary it was meant to be temporary, that people are not saved past, present, or future. People are only saved, not by the works that they do, but by faith in God and in God alone. And how now we are able to stand with confidence because of the righteousness of Christ and uphold His Word as the supreme guide for us in this world, to be guided into all truth by the Spirit. So as we get into Titus chapter 2, chapters 2 and 3, we need to remember, we cannot, we cannot muzzle the Scriptures. Simply because they, certain parts of it we don't like, don't agree with, or fit our culture or even our presupposed theologies. We need to understand the, the overarching premise of God's character throughout all of Scripture is that He is holy and therefore what He does is holy that he is good, and therefore what he does, what he says, and what he has established is good. Right doctrine, biblical theology, accurate interpretation of these things have to be the goal because they are what call and lead to godly living. This has been the thing that I've emphasized. This is the, the main point of what Paul is emphasizing to Titus. Chapter 1, we saw the, the qualifications for pastors Chapter 2, we're going to see the, the, that Christian conduct, how it, should, how it should be expressed within the church, within a body of believers. He's going to address certain people. He's going to address certain groups, certain demographics of those within the church. And then he's going to go even further than that. He's going to go out into the world. This is how Christians should conduct themselves within the world. We're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 3. Because the end of this letter... Paul simply summarizes in his closing to Titus. He mentions a few people that he would have come to him, 
have come and minister alongside of him or, or give thanks for them. But we also need to understand that he closes with verse 14 in, in a way that kind of summarizes for us, for what we've learned so far of what's going on. So chapter 3, starting in verse 12, and then we'll go back to chapter 2 and read all of the, the meat, read all of the practical things that he has instructed us. But chapter 3, starting in verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people, referring to the Cretan believers, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace and peace be with you all. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. In order to devote ourselves to good works, we must first understand what Paul is emphasizing. So as we get to chapter 2, verse 1, again, like I said, this will be primarily more Bible study than it will be a, a typical message. But I hope that you hear the practicality of what Paul is addressing. But as for you, he's addressing Titus, the man who is left in charge, the man who is left to shepherd, the man who is left to, to establish for this very young church the structure by which they are to, to, to follow God and to be under the authority of God's word and under the authority of elders and pastors who care for them. So Paul is addressing him, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and, and Savior, Jesus Christ." who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Chapter 3, remind them. Remind all of them, not just those specific individuals, but now remind everybody to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace... 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, foolish genealogies, foolish dissensions, and foolish quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. But as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. I want us to take a look at this, this next graph. This is the structure by which Titus, by which Paul, Titus is to instruct. Paul is instructing Titus about how to do it. But it's basically the structure through which all of Scripture is pointing us to how we are to live out our faith. The Great Commission is to go and to make disciples of all people, of all nations, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us, baptizing them, going. But this is a funnel. This is what we must understand about the Christian world. The, the, the world is not the goal if we ourselves are failing in these other th top three things. Look around. This is our church body. But in order for there to be a church, there must be what? People. At no point do you ever see in any place in the Scriptures, especially here where we get one of the clearest pictures about how the church is supposed to be structured, at no point in the New Testament do you ever see the words going to church or being at church. Those are location prepositions. They do not carry the same meaning that the New Testament is conveying, that the church is not about a location, the church is about people. The church is the chosen means and method through which God has sent out his message of restoration and good news and of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, and that's the light that pierces the darkness. But it first must begin in the lives of individuals. Did you know that what we do here on Sundays, what we do here as a body together, is just a larger expression of what should be happening every day for the life of a believer. My house is not big enough to fit all of you, so I'm glad that we have a building to be able to do this, to be able to gather, and that was the, that was the purpose. We talked about this morning with our students about the, the, the way that the early church was gathering together day by day, being together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings, doing all of these things, but what would have happened if they didn't take Christ seriously, if they just claimed to profess to know God, but didn't really do anything about it. That's what Paul told Titus about the false teachers. They profess to know God, but they, do, but they deny Him by their works. The church is made up of people who are a part of their own individual lives, who have their own individual responsibilities, the other 168 hours of, 167 hours of the week outside of the hour that we get to spend together and worship God together. And that's the way that we need to view and need to, to filter through with the, the instructions of Scripture is to understand that right doctrine and right devotion are two sides of the same coin and they need to start at the individual level that we ourselves need to be in worship of God personally, and then within our home. If we are not leading our homes, if we are not leading our household in the way of God's instruction, then we fail to, to accomplish the next two things. One man that I look up to and have learned a lot over the years says that we can teach our sons and daughters to keep their eye on the ball, but we very rarely encourage them to keep their eye on Christ. Very few of them will go on to play at the highest professional level, but every single one of them will stand before the judge and the creator. And every single one of us will stand before our creator. And what Paul is saying is that these are the ways to test. These are the things that Jesus was speaking of 
when he said that you will know them by their fruit. One of the things that Jesus had most trouble with when it came to opposition were the disciples, or sorry, not the disciples, the Pharisees. The Pharisees gave the, the, the most opposition to Jesus because they were the false teachers that Paul is referring to. But instead of coming from in, within the church of Crete, they were within the, the body of Jewish believers. In fact, in Luke 23, I'm sorry, Matthew 23. Matthew 23, Jesus gives seven woes, seven warnings, seven proclamations of impending destruction towards those who claim to know God but are doing the exact opposite of following God. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds of the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but they not what they do, but not what they do. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 16, woe to you, you are blind guides. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs, serpents. Verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The words of Christ himself, those who profess to know God and yet deny them with their works. Paul says it's got to start at the individual level. It's got to move into the way that we live and we, we conduct and we, we pray for and we lead our homes. It will filter down into the way that we serve within the church. The church is just a larger expression, again, of the home, the way that it was structured, the way that it's ordained and intended and designed to be. Understand this, that doctrine and devotion are two sides of the same coin, but doctrine without proper devotion is just empty religion. That's all it is. You can know all the things in the, in the world, but if you don't live according to the intended purpose by which they were contributed and spoken to us and communicated, it's nothing else but just noise. It does nothing except just heap burdens upon you that you will never be able to carry. But devotion without proper doctrine is endless humanism. Humanism is the, the ancient philosophy that man and mankind's happiness is the goal of our existence. That to do whatever makes you happy is the purpose of why we are here on earth. There are plenty of people who I know who would claim to, know, to be Christians, and yet they live the exact opposite of that. Many of them go on to say that I've been in church my entire life and I've learned what the Bible could never teach me. I'm sorry, but that's not the case. And this is not a, this is not a chastisement. This is a warning. And understand this, that every warning that comes to us from God and through Scripture is a message of hope. The prophets get a bad rap for all of the, the, the doom and destruction that they communicate to the people of Israel and to the people of Judah. But why would God send anybody to warn them about what was going to happen if he didn't intend to give them a way of escape? If I was God, I wouldn't tell anybody what was going to happen if I had planned to destroy them. But thank the Lord that I'm not God. Every warning, every message that comes with correction is actually a message of hope and of restoration. We need to understand that we, we need to properly understand who we are serving by going to the source, by going to the scriptures in order, to, in order to understand how we are to live in accordance to what he has said. So in these two chapters, we see two primary themes 
sound doctrine, and sincere devotion. One leads to the other, and the other emphasizes the one. Doctrine leads to proper devotion, sincere devotion. And sincere devotion is an expression of sound doctrine. I hear a lot of people say that when they trusted Christ, they were sincere about it. I'm sorry, but you can be sincerely wrong. There are many people, even on television, you can see how devoted they are to what they believe, but what they believe is far from what the Scriptures say. But more so than looking at the outside world, to take it down to the individual level, it's real easy to get distracted with other people's lives. It's real easy to get distracted with what other people should be doing. But when we are face-to-face with what Scripture says to us, we have the tendency to either go to pride or to despair. That's what the rich young ruler did. Rich young ruler came to Jesus. It's a good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say to him? To follow the law of Moses. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To not sin. To not murder. Honor your father and mother. He goes through the, the Ten Commandments. Rich young ruler says, I've done all of that. What else? In fact, it's interesting. If you go back and read that story, when he approaches Jesus, he says, good teacher. And Jesus' response to that is, only the Father is good. And then after he gives them this gauntlet of commandments to run through to make sure that he is understanding rightly the law of Moses, he says, not only, only God is good, gives them the Ten Commandments, and then right after that, this rich young ruler says, me too. I've done all those things. So Jesus Hits him right where it hurt him. Go sell all your possessions. Give everything that you have. And then come follow me. What did the man do? He turned away. He walked away. So you're not really good. So he's not really that good. As many things as he could affirm, as many things as he could say, yes, I, I believe that I've done this. I believe I've done it well enough. He wasn't truly good. His pride was so offended by what Jesus had called him to do, which was basically give me everything that you could possibly have because it's mine anyways. We have the tendency to go to either pride or to despair. I'll never be able to be like that. I'll never be able to, to follow God. Woe is me. What we need to understand is that it's not about what side of the, the, the aisle we've, we land on, prideful or despair, what matters is how do we understand the fact that we have been set apart and saved by God and His grace. The preferred method that Paul uses to give, to highlight these themes, is that he identifies certain individuals, and we'll go back and look at those, and then he gives specific instructions. So the identifying, he identifies five, maybe six different people. Verse 2, chapter 2, older men. Older men, you are to be, and these are not just older, older physically, older by age. These are also considered to be the spiritual leaders, the spiritual leaders of the communities, the spiritual leaders of their homes. Older men, you are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. In fact, the word sound, just for, for a brief side note, the word sound here appears only probably eight times within the pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. But it's found five times just in Titus itself. The word sound is supposed to, to, to communicate literally health, physically healthy. In fact, that's the same word that Jesus' parable of the prodigal son when the servant goes out to tell the older son that the younger one had come home, that the father had received him and was throwing him a banquet, he says, your father has killed the fattened calf. Come, for your, for your brother has returned safe and sound. 
Scripture, though, makes it very clear that it's supposed to connote strength and stability. No corruption, no deviating from the truth, free of error. You're to be sound in your doctrine, you're also to be sound in your faith. Verse 8, sound in speech. But older men, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. Second group, older women, likewise, in the same way that. To be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. There was the tendency for people, for women in 1 Timothy that Paul had to address. He had to address the fact that they were, they were too involved in their own desires, too involved in their own passions. In fact, when he gets into verse 4, train the young women to love their husbands, their children. Older women, you're to teach what is good. That these, women may, these young women may be self-controlled, pure, working at home. That's not a, that's not a sexist thing. It's not wrong to, to work, but to understand that there is a specific role and responsibility of the husband and of the wife, and to glory in that, not to try and shake that off, not to try and rebel against that, but to understand that we have a specific role. Women, mothers, you have a role that I will never play. You have a way to reach people that I never will, and vice versa. That distinct role and responsibility that is so uniquely a part of how God created men and women is supposed to reflect the harmony of the Trinity. We even see that if you go down to to chapter 3 and verse 4, when Paul addresses the foundation upon which we are able to do any of these things. The fact that we have distinct roles and responsibilities assigned to us and designed for us by God to live within is to reflect the harmony of the Trinity. But when, God, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 5, chapter 3, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He, God the Father, poured out on us through God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Father is the architect of our salvation. He sent Christ to accomplish that salvation by paying the debt that we never could. And He sends the Holy Spirit to apply that salvation to us and to give us right standing before God. At no point is the Trinity ever at war within itself At no point is God ever divided amongst himself. One of the most beautiful things about the the God that we serve is that he is in himself harmonious. That there is never any fight for power. There is never any sinful desire to be what any of the three persons are not. Because the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and yet they have each individual distinct roles as one God. If you're able to completely and totally explain that to me here on earth, I'd love to hear it. But it's one of the mysteries that God himself deserves to have only applied to him. You are one being, you are one person, I am one being, I am one person, but we serve a God who is one being and three persons, equally glorified, equally eternal, co-equal to himself. And the way in which he created us is supposed to reflect that harmony, reflect that unity. Younger men, likewise, younger men, verse 6 in chapter 2, likewise, be self-controlled. Even Titus, show yourself in all respects, to be a model of good works, to be a model of that which is uniquely applied to the life of a believer. 
Understand this, that although God's intention and design for leadership within the church is to be held by men, women are spiritual equals and essential to the, God's purpose for the body of Christ. Sound speech, verse 8. Sound in speech. And this speech is speech that cannot be condemned, but instead it reveals the condemnation of those who are trying to pervert God's word so that any opponent, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's Proverbs 28.1. I told you several weeks ago that's my anti-jogging verse. But the wicked run when no one is pursuing them. But the righteous are bold as lions. If we're living in such a way to where we are righteous, we're living according to God's commands and God's instructions, there's no need to look over our shoulders for what's about to happen to us. That's what the wicked do. It's a picture of a guilty conscience, always looking over our shoulders for what's about to happen. Who's going to see what we're doing? Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. I think it's said most clearly in 1 Peter, though, as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Talking about the same submission that he calls the bondservants to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Be well-pleasing and not argumentative. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 13 says, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That our lives ought to be able to put to silence those who are ignorant of what truth really is. As we move into verse 11, verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2, we see the grounds by which we're able to claim these things. He repeats it even again as we go into the world, but here for the individual in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. That same appearance, if you go down to verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So this appearing, the grace of God that has appeared is Christ himself. This grace brings salvation. It saves, it sanctifies, it sustains us for all people. Now we need to do a little bit of footwork to understand the all people. Unless we ascribe to universalism, which says that salvation is given to all people, regardless of their faith in Christ, then we commit a fatal error. What's best understood is when it talks about all people, offered to all people, bringing salvation to all people, notice that it comes right after the different groups and categories of people within the church already. Older men, older women, younger men, Younger women, you yourself, Titus, bondservants within the church, those who were employed, bondservants, slaves within the, uh, within the church, there, it was not like the atrocity that we see within our own country's history. The majority of the time that it's referred to within the scriptures was actually to what is the modern day equivalent to an employee-employer relationship. Sometimes you even go into slavery to be able to pay off a debt and instead of being able to work a job to pay off the debt, you just go work for the person who you owe the debt to. But all these people, all these groups of people classify within the, within the church. Look at verse, verse 12. He helps us to understand that all people, this grace that has appeared, which brings salvation for all people, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Verse 13, waiting for our Blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Then in verse 14, he, he gives more clarity. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
there are so many things that we can say about our past lives. So many things that we could stand on and what other people would probably stand on, but what the enemy loves to do most is to love to show us who we used to be. We love nothing else, nothing other than to show us and to constantly be faced with who we used to be. The kind of people that we used to live in our, in our own flesh, in our own simple desires. Verse 3, he gets into the broader scope, not just these individual identifying different groups and instructing different groups, but then he identifies and instructs the entire church. Chapter 3, remind them, all of them. Remind them to be submissive, to be obedient, ready, not to speak evil, not to quarrel, to be gentle, all of these things. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and all of these things. Another parallel to this would be what Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers, who, as you probably know, had a lot of issues themselves. Paul writes to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then verse 11, and such were some of you. But you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. To be justified is to be legally declared innocent, though we are as sinful as could be, not by, not by the grounds of our own righteousness. Back to chapter 3, Titus, verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, the same grace that appeared, which is Christ who brings salvation, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He washes us. He regenerates us. That's a, that's a word that is used to, to carry the understanding of being regenerated, meaning a mysterious private act done by God to bring us to saving faith. The same idea is communicated in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul again shows us who we used to be. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, in the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is why it's so important to keep in mind that doctrine and devotion are two sides of the same coin. This is the God that we serve. This is the, the Lord of our lives. And then verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That gift that brings salvation is not only grace, but the closest antecedent to this gift that is expressed in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the closest identifier to the gift that is of God is not merely grace, but it is the faith that saves us. Saving faith is not something that we produce within ourselves. It is the work of God. This is what Paul says to Titus. This is how you are in, as individuals are to live. 
This is how you are to live within your own lives personally when no one else is around. This is how you are to live in such a way to where your homes are beacons of truth and of grace to the world so that you may join together with the church who is hopefully doing the same thing on an individual level and in a home level so as not to disqualify themselves when they come together and worship as the body so that the mission can be extended and to go out from the church to the world. Because again, I don't want to go, I don't want my taxes to be done by somebody who is guilty of tax fraud. I don't want to go to somebody who is not capable of doing the thing that they say that they can do. And when the world looks at us, when people ask you, why in the world would you possibly respond to the situation that you're in, whether it is victory or whether it is suffering, why in the world? Would you be able to be as anchored as consistent, as hopeful as you are. Verse 7, chapter 3, so that by being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. It's Paul's way of saying everything that's been communicated but more so than that, the gospel that saves us. That's what I want you to insist on in this church. That's what you, Titus, need to uphold beyond anything else, to uphold fundamental doctrines, to display faithful devotion, and to reject and correct false teachings. Before Paul gets to the end of his letter, he wants to remind Titus that there will be those, there will be those who come in and preach for shameful gain. We're to avoid the foolish controversies, we're to avoid the foolish genealogies and dissensions and the quarrels, for those things are unprofitable and worthless. But in verse 10, he says, do not avoid the people. Avoid the false teaching but make every effort to go to the person who stirs up the division and to extend a hand of restoration. But there are people who do not want that. There are people who reject that. There are people who claim to be Christians and who attend church every week. Who reject the God of the Bible because it doesn't fit their ideas, their theologies, their beliefs. The marks of a corrupt culture, and we saw as they enter into the world, corrections, condemnation, all of those, but the marks of a faithful believer, the marks of a faithful follower ought to be as such, that correction is to be expected and welcomed, because it's what conforms us into the image of Christ, and not a single one of us is so great or so mature in their faith that they cannot progress more. That we are to preach the gospel of repentance and faith in Christ on the individual level, within our homes, within the church, so that we can take that message to the world. Not by arrogance, not by righteousness, not by hypocritical ideas, but by the grace of God to understand that truth brings freedom. It's not a personal attack, it's what brings freedom. We receive the forgiveness of our sins, but we also receive freedom from our sin in Christ and in Christ alone. Because ultimately, for the believer, holiness is what reigns supreme because it is the very character of our God that we serve. Let's pray. My God, how gracious have you been. That you would patiently endure 
the disobedience and the rebelliousness of your children. That you would use it to create something new. To create a people for your own possession who might take seriously your words and live according to them so that the world might see something different. Everybody knows. Whether they claim that it's not true or whether they justify it any other way, everybody knows that you exist. We stand on the truth of your word and of what you claim, that all people are without excuse and they suppress the truth of who you are in their own unrighteousness. But God, let that break our hearts. Let that motivate us to to make sure that we as individuals are living godly lives, that we are leading our homes in righteousness, that we are being examples to our homes, examples to the the, the members of of our body about what it means and what it looks like to really pursue godly qualifications, to possess godly qualities, to to not only believe the right things, but to allow those things to produce accurate reflection of what you are like. So that we may be prepared for every good work and devote ourselves carefully to do according to what you've said. That's the goal. Help us to do that. Help us to not grow weary of doing that. Renew us when we do become tired, burned out, so sick of sin that we are exhausted. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you to continue to follow you no matter where you lead and to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength because it's your glory that you deserve and that we take with us every day. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.